from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello Earthlings and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. Well... Not exactly weekly. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Each week I bring you a range of news stories. Okay, every once in a while I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little started. bit better than dope is. A brand new kid to show biz. With knowledge I persevere, but find out do me a favor. favor. Let me in here. And we can find the rhyme to fill in space and drop the bass with a taste of light. What's been going on since the last show? Not much. Oh, you know, Megastorm Sandy. Dude, Business Week said uh, it's global warming stupid. So, I don't know. I think Michael Bloomberg has finally realized that, oh, wait, maybe aligning myself with these far-right ideologues in the GOP isn't really the way to go. And, uh, yeah, global warming keeps affecting people. And meanwhile, in the United States, we're having this moronic debate about, is it real, is it not real? And that's a deliberate effort of people who are trying to fog up the debate. And, you know, it's like 98% to 2%. I'm sorry if, if uh, ah, drives me crazy. So anyway, love and best wishes to anybody who may be listening to this podcast who has experienced frustration, turmoil, headaches because of Sandy. Uh, I hope people are able to rebuild. And uh, I, I really think, you know, hey, we got to get some action changing on global warming because uh, it's not going to get better from here on out. You know, we're going to have more and more of these super storms, these mega storms. And if, if this isn't the wake up call, we need to make changes to infrastructure and you know, institutional stuff, not just, eh, recycle everybody, come on. I mean, that's a good thing to do, but that's not the kind of major, large-scale, systematic change we need. We need more public transportation. We need more green energy. Naomi Klein was on um, Bill Moyers recently, and she did a really good interview. So I'll put a link from that in the show notes. Uh, and, um, yeah, she did a really good discussion, and she had a lot of good things to say. I may have links to that in the show, but anyway... Um, yeah, there was a message from Chatbox guest 4412, and he said, I thought you said synesthetic. And I was like, dude, I think I did say synesthetic. It is a fascinating subject. For those who don't know, synesthesia is the association of one sense with another. Um, and I, I'm just fascinated by it. There's actually a cool music group called Synesthesia. Their first album, Embody, is their best by far. And to the best of our knowledge, which is a show that comes out of Wisconsin Public Radio, they did a very cool show about it. I will put a link to that show in the show notes. And I had a bit about uh, Vladimir Nabokov, the Russian novelist, and he apparently, uh, this is what they said on the interview, Nabokov, it turned out, was a lepidopterist, which he, he butterfly collector. He loved butterflies. So one of his favorite butterflies happened to have yellow wings and a black body. So if you look at it, it's yellow, black, yellow. Well, it just so happens that for him, the letter A was yellow and D was black. So he loved the name ADA because that was yellow, black, yellow in the same way as his favorite butterfly. And I just love that idea. I mean, I think all of us to some extent are synesthetic because we associate, you know, for instance, there are certain songs that you associate with certain places, right? So, you know, I can never hear 
uh, Gangnam Style without thinking about being here at my desk the first time I ever listened to it, watched the video. Uh, it was a Sunday mor a Saturday morning, and I'd heard about it at school all week, and I'm like, fine, I'm going to finally listen to this freaking song. And so I'm always going to associate, you know, uh, that place with that song. So that's one example. There's a lot of others, I'm sure, that happen in all of our lives. But obviously some people interact with the different senses in a synesthetic way more than others. So I, I think synesthesia is a cool thing. And uh, I may have mentioned it. I don't know if I did or not in that instance that you're referring to. But thanks for the feedback anyway. All right, let's talk There's about this. No Obama got reelected. Yay, I guess. Hooray. I mean, you know, he's better than Romney, no doubt. But I don't know. I, I, I wanted to vote for Jill Stein, but then I thought, you know what? This time, I'm a, what I'm going to do, I think, is if it's really close each day. And let's be honest. Look, everyone's like, Obama had a mandate. Obama had a landslide. No, he didn't. Because the same was, and people said the same thing about Bush. Oh, he had a mandate, a landslide. No, he didn't. And I said back then that Bush didn't have a mandate or a landslide. And I'm saying now Obama didn't have a mandate or a landslide because it was like 51 to 48%, okay? And I'm sorry, that's not a huge margin of error. So uh, I think Democrats and Republicans both need to recognize that it's not as though we have the overwhelming majority of people into one political party or another. We don't. We have most of the voting population split pretty evenly along these party lines. And we've got to move past that and find common ground. Now, I understand that that's very difficult when a bunch of Republicans are mostly just dealing and drag, drag, digging their heels in and refusing to ever even consider raising taxes. Anyway, uh, I voted for Obama, but you know what? We need to push him on three things. Number one, we got to stop these drone strikes. And I'm going to talk about robots in the later section of the podcast. So stay tuned, people. Uh, we also need to fight the prison industrial complex. The drug war is failing and we're filling up these privatized prisons with a whole bunch of people who are guilty of nonviolent drug offenses. And that's totally messed up. So we need to resist that. And the new Jim Crow that Michelle Alexander wrote about, if you have not read her book, you're sleeping. Read that book. And we also need to send Wall Street criminals to prison. And Charles uh, Ferguson wrote this awesome book, Predator Nation. Everybody should read it and find out exactly which laws were broken and by whom. And then we should get to work putting them in prison. And it's really sad that we haven't had more action on that. Now, I could tell you what I think about Obama, but I think Tavis Smiley and Cornell West do a much better job of it. And they were featured on Democracy Now! So let me play a little clip of Tavis Smiley and Cornell West on Democracy Now! recently. In, in the president's um, forward motion uh, in the second term to, to, to establish a legacy, and I don't think that being president ought to be about a legacy, it ought to be about advancing the best for the American people. But in this conversation about his legacy, I want to see what risk he's going to take. Is he going to put himself on the line for poor people? Is he going to have an honest conversation about drones, as Doc said earlier? You know, is he going to ever say the word president, the phrase president industrial complex? Reagan wouldn't say AIDS. Bush wouldn't say climate change. Will Obama say prison industrial complex? I mean, I want to know where the risk is that equates to being the most progressive president ever. That's, is, I don't get that. Is it progressive to sign the National Defense Authorization Act in which you can actually detain American citizens with no due process, no judicial process to assassinate American citizens based on executive power? That's not, that, that is authoritarian, that's autocratic, it's crypto-fascist. We have to call it for what it is. Drones are war crimes. 
We have to call it for what it is. That's the tradition that produced us. That's what Frederick Douglass is about. That's what Ida B. Wells is about. That's what Abraham Joshua Heschel at his best was. That's what Dorothy Day was. That's our tradition. Now, if one doesn't want to be part of that tradition, be inside of the White House, then stay in the White House and have a good time and break dance. But don't lie. Don't so, I, I, yeah, they got a lot of good stuff to say. You should watch the whole interview because it's a really powerful segment. Um, I think they're being a little hard on Michael Eric Dyson, apparently. So, if you don't know, Michael Eric Dyson is a pretty well-regarded academic. Garrett doesn't agree that he's an academic, whatever. Uh, anyway, he's written a lot about hip-hop and a lot about African-American history and culture and, and stuff like that. And um, he, he's gone to work for MSNBC and... There's an attitude among some progressives that MSNBC, I think there's some credence to this theory, that MSNBC has become kind of a cheerleader for the Democratic Party in the same way that Fox News is basically a cheerleader for the Republican Party. And so I think that it's sad to see people on MSNBC kind of apologizing for the sorts of things that we would never stand for if it were being done by a Republican president. I think Rachel Maddow is probably an exception to that rule. And I haven't really seen Michael Eric Dyson's show or any of his appearances on MSNBC, so I don't really know. To have a smiling Cornell West say that he sold his soul, I don't really know that that's necessary. But I do agree that it's sad when people who have been enmeshed in the struggle against illegitimate state power suddenly become apologists for it. So Christopher Hitchens, for instance, I think was a prime example of that switch. And I think it's really sad to see. So anyway, uh, there's a lot to be said about Obama's second term. I wish him well. A number of people seem really optimistic about Obama doing better in a second term, but let's not forget that it was during Clinton's second term that he smashed the welfare program and kicked a lot of people out into the streets. And really, you know, during President Obama, Clinton's second term, he, you know, basically gave Wall Street more and more wiggle room. And I, I don't, I wasn't impressed by the end of Clinton's term in office. And I'm not expecting great things from Obama. But again, it has to do with how much we push him. So let's push him, people. There was an article. I mean, there's been a lot of stuff about how much Hurricane Sandy could have been blamed on global warming. U.S. News and World Report had uh, a guy on who said, you can't say global warming caused any single event. But when we start to see a trend like this, I think it shows there's a good chance these hurricanes wouldn't be happening without warming said one of the report's authors, and this was the reason I quoted this particular article, The one of the report's authors is Aslak Grinstead. So, you know, if you can't trust Aslak Grinstead, then, I mean, who can you trust? Come on. You tell him Grinstead, comma, Aslak. That guy must get so much stick for his name. What's your name? Aslak Grinstead. Why do you say it like that? Because I try to say it normally and everybody just made fun of me. So I figure I'll go for a big laugh as soon as I say my name. Aslak Grinstead. Uh, <laughs> yeah, anyway, uh, Grinstead. Grinstead. Business Week had an article about Hurricane Sandy, and it was titled, The Best Defense Against Extreme Weather, Live in a Rich Country. Because... As much as we, people in the United States, there were certainly some people who suffered because of Hurricane Sandy. Usually it's people who live in poorer areas, suffer the most. But that extends to poor countries as well. So Business Week said this, Sandy makes a mockery of Washington's inaction on climate change. Even small rises in sea levels create the potential for far more frequent extreme weather events. Events like Sandy should hardly come as a surprise to politicians or the rest of us. At the same time, Sandy demonstrated once again that those who will suffer the most from increasingly common extreme weather events are poor people. So there's a lot of interesting information in that Business Week article. 
The other thing that's been happening more and more as we speak, and although there's a truce today, uh, Israel and Gaza are at it again, and you know Israel versus Hamas, and this constant back and forth, and it's all crazy. Uh, apparently, there's been a ceasefire. Uh, Hillary Clinton may have brokered a sort of last-minute truce for the moment, and we'll see how long it lasts. A lot of times in the past, one side or the other has said, ah, to hell with it, this ceasefire, and they start fighting again. Um, there was a story that I got from the Daily Star, which is out of Lebanon, and the headline is, Israel Army Leaflet Warns Gazans to Leave Their Homes. And the article says, Israel's Air Force dropped leaflets across Gaza City on Tuesday, urging people to evacuate their homes immediately amid fears the military was poised to launch a ground operation. And it's my hope that the peace deal, or the ceasefire at least, uh, these terms are, uh, have specific meaning in those places because a truce is very different from a ceasefire is very different from a you know, memorandum of understanding or whatever it is. But I'm hoping that this ceasefire will last and that there will not be a lot of killing on both sides. And let's be honest, when this fighting starts, most of the killing ha happens on the Palestinian side. And it's a sad, tragic loss of life when it happens anywhere. And I don't mean to sound as though I'm being glib about dead Israelis, because that sucks, and it's wrong, and it's horrible, and Hamas is committing war crimes. But Israel is also committing war crimes by shelling civilian areas. And um, Noam Chomsky had a quote recently where he said that, you know, it's Israel's not engaged in an act of defense here. When Israel goes rolling into Gaza and they have such massively overwhelming firepower, and they kill ten times as many Palestinians as were killed in Israel, that's not a matter of defense. So let's just get our terms straight. Again, like Cornel West and Tavis Miley said, you got to call it what it is. Uh, meanwhile, elsewhere in the world, there was a really interesting article in Al Jazeera where the headline was Karachi Factory Safety Standards Appalling. And this is about a... Pakistan's commercial capital, Karachi, uh, there was a garment fire at a factory, uh, a factory. There was a fire at a garment factory. Uh, 289 people died. And uh, the tragedy was one of the worst industrial accidents in the country's history. Investigators say the high death toll is most likely because emergency exit doors in the five-story building were locked. And fire extinguishers were either non-existent or not working at the time of the blaze. The father and son owners of Ali Enterprises, which produced clothing for international retailers, are currently in a provincial prison awaiting formal charges, which could include murder. And I I don't think we'd see that in the United States if it were a U.S. company where a bunch of people died in a garment fire. But you know what? Maybe I'm talking too quickly because I remember there was a Hamlet chicken processing plant fire uh, that happened in North Carolina in 1991. And a whole bunch of people died. Uh, 25 people were killed in that fire. And I was all ready to get on my high horse when I was doing the show. But then I looked out. Uh, criminal prosecution, part of the article on Wikipedia, um, they were charged with non-negligent manslaughter. But see, then again, non-negligent manslaughter, that's very different from murder. And, you know, again, this was a case where, like, people weren't, they weren't, the things were locked, the doors were locked, and, and stuff was all messed up. I should get my facts straight before I comment on this. Hang on a second. Yeah, okay, here we go. So the company had a poor safety record. Uh, it was cited in the 80s for safety violations. The violations included poorly marked or blocked emergency exits. And so, you know, there was no alarm system to warn workers in the back in the plant, and there were no sprinklers in the building. Uh, it's just, it's messed up, you know, and the people responsible were, uh, you know, not doing what they needed to do, and people died because of it, and it makes me sick. Anyway, uh, moving on. There was an article on rawstory.com about voter fraud Republican style. 
Uh, Oregon election worker was fired for altering ballots to a Republican straight ticket. And it's funny to me that the only real stories I heard about voter fraud taking place in this election were things going on in Republican areas. People, Republicans who were trying to alter votes. Or, you know, as we know, there was a massive effort to disenfranchise voters. And that's not necessarily fraud, but it was uh, certainly a frustrating and disappointing trend to see happening. Meanwhile, Jason Gallagher sent me a very interesting article about people protesting to support PBS, which I thought was awesome. Uh, people standing up and saying, we love Big Bird. Uh, we want to see PBS continue to get uh, public funding because Mitt Romney was talking about, I like Big Bird, but I'm going to defund you know the corporation for public broadcasting or whatever. And I'm sorry, that's messed up. Uh, you know, the the... PBS should be a public institution. We need public television. Frontline is the best source of in-depth journalism that exists in the United States right now. There is no other institution that does better in-depth journalism on a regular basis than Frontline. 60 Minutes comes close, but they don't go nearly as far as Frontline. They don't go into nearly as much depth. 60 Minutes does 20-minute segments. Three 20-minute segments every week. And 60 Minutes does some really good journalism. I actually listen to the 60 Minutes podcast every week, and a lot of it is like, recently there was one about, oh, we can't find enough skilled workers to fill our jobs in this Colorado manufacturing plant. And it was all about, like, the people who show up, they don't know about being on time and filling out the resume perfectly and everything. And they were like, these are very simple skills we can't get people to show. But I refuse to believe that it's that simple. And they point made the point in the piece that it, it was really a matter of um, – they, they're not paying enough to get skilled workers. And if you want good quality workers, you have to pay them to come work for you. And uh, owners were like, oh, that's not the issue. Blah, we pay fine. But the workers who are thinking of applying, they're like, well, this isn't enough money. So, what, but, so anyway, 60 Minutes does skew toward the business class. Most of their interviews about worker issues have to do with interviewing CEOs and interviewing people who run factories and run tech companies and all the rest of it. And a lot of their in journalism is sort of you know puffy, like, here's a feature about this actor or whatever. But they also do good work about, you know, uh, What's going on internationally, um, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, homeless vets, things like that. So I'll give 60 Minutes credit, but they don't go nearly as far as Frontline. And if you haven't seen the Frontline piece about Dropout Nation, you are sleeping. Go to PBS Frontline and watch Dropout Nation. It's, a, it's the best look at what really goes on in high school for struggling students you're going to find anywhere. And... It's much more accurate than, you know, listening to Bill Gates or Michelle Rhee talk about how we can improve education. Because if you don't take seriously the real stories of the kids who are struggling, you're not going to look at education honestly. And all this talk about uh, best practice, high-quality teacher training, holding people accountable, it means nothing unless you're actually willing to honestly take account of what's going on for these students' lives. Nah. Back to Obama real quick. Uh, this will be the last thing in the current events file. Dennis Kucinich has said uh, the Obama administration must account to Congress for targeted assassinations. And this was in The Guardian. And uh, the, uh, he wrote a piece for The Guardian. He says, according to news reports, President Obama maintains a list of alleged militants to be assassinated. Some are U.S. citizens. None will get to plead his case. The president tells us to trust that this is all perfectly legal and constitutional, even though Congress is not allowed to see any legal justification. The weapon of choice in these assassinations are remote-controlled planes called drones. 
the targeted killing of suspects by the United States is slowly and quietly becoming institutionalized as a permanent feature of the U.S. counterterrorism strategy. Unless members of Congress begin to push back, such killings will continue without any oversight, transparency, or accountability. Victims of drone strikes, including U.S. citizens, are secretly stripped of their right to due process and are arbitrarily deprived of their life in violation of international human rights law. So, uh, yeah, I've said it before, I'll say it again, I am totally opposed to the use of these drone strikes, these targeted assassinations, and the one thing that he didn't mention here, at least not in the part I just read you, is that, and I've said it before, I'll say it again, the Obama administration, I'd like to blame this on the Bush administration, I almost said Bush just now, this isn't about the Bush administration, this is Obama administration, reclassifies all adult males within the vicinity of the airstrike as militants. So if an innocent civilian male, adult male, gets killed, and adult male, I think, is classified as anyone over the age of, like, 15 or something, it's ludicrous how they classify it. But anybody who's classified as an adult male is a militant, so therefore there's no innocent civilians getting killed. They can say that there's no innocent civilians getting killed. And based on how they classify people, on their definition of innocent, this is that Bill Clinton thing, well, it depends on what you mean by is... It depends on what you mean by innocent. There's no innocent people being hurt because there's no such thing as innocent people There's this thing called Rolling Jubilee, and a number of my friends have alerted me to it. I think it's cool. I gave him some money. Uh, the headline that I saw in the Telegraph was, OWS, Occupy Wall Street campaigners, buy debt to abolish it. And the summary goes like this. Individuals or companies can buy distressed debt from lenders at knockdown prices if the, de if the borrower is in default or behind with payments and are then free, the people who purchase the debt, are free to do with it as they see fit, including canceling it free of charge. As a test run, the group Rolling Jubilee spent $500 on distressed debt, buying $14,000 worth of outstanding loans and pardoning the debtors. They are now looking to expand their experiment nationwide and they are asking people to donate money to the cause. Now, I've heard from some people that this isn't going to do much because by the time debt reaches these pennies on the dollar markets, it's nearly worthless. Still, it could save some folks from debt collector calls and harassment and you know stress and all that, whatever. But uh, So I think it's generally a good idea. Uh, and here's a little clip from the little promo video they put together. Here's how we're going to do it. In America, banks sell debt on this shadowy market full of debt buyers. Debt collectors then turn around and try to extort the full amount from us. That's where the rolling jubilee comes in. It raises money to buy the debt. But instead of collecting on the debts we buy, we're going to abolish it. Poof. So I think it's a good idea. Uh, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but I, I think it's a good idea, and I'm all for, you know, the, the point that they make is that, look, debt is one thing that has been with us for a long time, and there's questions about, okay, if you take on debt, you have a responsibility, and, and this may be, you know, the, 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 the phrase is moral hazard. If somebody takes on debt, and then they have that debt, you know, obliterated, then the moral hazard is, oh, other people will say, oh, well, I can just do that too. And then people will take on debts and then they'll be like, whatever, who cares? I don't ever have to pay it back. And, and then people who are trying to lend out money will stop doing it because nobody seems to take the idea of debt seriously. However, that and, and that's a concern in general about debt. And I'm not in favor of obliterating everyone's debt everywhere around the world always, but 
I will say that the American economy in the last 40 years has become radically restructured in such a way that a lot of working families don't have a lot of choice except to go into a lot of debt because real wages for working people have basically stagnated since the 1980s. And uh, that's not that that doesn't allow people a decent standard of living. Now, at the same time, banks like Chase Manhattan and Citigroup and Bank of America have realized that there's a lot of money to be made by getting people to go into debt and to stay in debt because that way you can charge them late fees and you can charge them, you know, account balances and credit fees and all these other things that Michelle Warren has stood up and said. No, absolutely, Elizabeth Warren. Sorry, uh, that that you know we we that we. Can, the banks are getting crazy paid off of us being perpetually in debt. And that's messed up. And and that's that's why I think the debt jubilee makes sense because it's 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 a way of the banks uh, profiting off of us being in debt and we haven't had a lot of choice other than to take on that debt unless we want to live in a totally uh, plebeian existence where we have very very little in terms of you know creature comforts or anything like that and you know productivity has been going up wealth has been growing up GDP has been growing but we've been seeing as working people we've been seeing very little of those that, that wealth that's been created and that's not fair and so this debt is one way of the you know one percent saying hey uh, we we get all of the wealth that's coming out and you have to pay us back if you want a little bit of that decent life that's supposed to come out of that wealth and so the Rolling Jubilee says no that's not fair and we're going to band together to try to obliterate some of that debt which is you know designed to hurt working people in perpetuity Speaking of wealthy people trying to get paid off of people who aren't so wealthy, this there's apparently an explosion now of payday loan places in the UK. And he sent me a website to a place called Wonga.mobi. And, uh, you know, it is the season because th these places have been in the US for a while. And, of course, they tend to uh, headquarter themselves most uh, vividly in places where poor people live, especially black folks and Latino folks uh, and Chinatowns and stuff like that. And of course, the idea is, you know, look, again, it's that same notion of debt. If you can't afford to, you know, get Christmas presents for your people, you know, your family or whatever, uh, then you can just borrow some money against your next payday. Well, uh, so again, some people don't have a choice sometimes with that. And the, 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 the twist, of course, is that the interest loans are outrageous. The rates on these loans are insane. And nobody who had any other option would ever agree to these loans. But that's the thing is that, you know, when people are struggling, when, when there's not a lot of, you know, when unemployment's high and real wages are stagnating or people aren't getting paid enough, then sometimes you don't have a choice, right? Again, unless you want to just give your children, you know, candy bar wrappers for Christmas or whatever it is. And some people are like, oh, you just, you're poor, you're poor. Okay. But, but that the fact of the matter is that, you know, some people, uh, whatever like it's it's not it's not a just way of looking at society to say well you know there's all this wealth being made but the people who work for a living shouldn't get any of it uh so i i i'd like to see payday loan places uh regulated more strictly and and you know maybe even abolished but but i know people who have had to depend on those payday loan places so again this is where regulation comes in okay the payday loan places might might should exist but the rates the interest rates can't be above you know 700 billion percent or you know whatever pick a pick a limit Meanwhile, I found a Business Week article about it, and the article says, hungry for income, banks flirt with payday lending. So apparently now Bank of America and Citigroup and, you know, uh, Chase Manhattan are all now 
getting into this payday lending scheme because it's a way of you know being profitable. Speaking of people, working people trying to get enough, Walmart's going on strike, baby. Uh, this is coming out uh, the Wednesday before Black Friday. And those in the UK apparently don't know what Black Friday is because SLH asked me about it. And uh, it, Black Friday is a time of year when people in the United States go crazy and they camp out in front of Best Buy and they push each other down and they spit on workers and they stab each other in order to get, you know, electronics and trinkets for their friends and stuff. And all the stores have these insane sales. If you're here at 3 a.m., you can save $200 on this laptop computer or whatever. Blah. And it's become this ritual and and I, I told my students, please don't do that. It's insane. Save your breath and time and money. And and they're all like, oh, it's my it's a tradition among my family to go and we shop and we save and it's fun. And I just feel like it's a sad example of exploitative consumerism. And everybody gets all hysterical about saving a few dollars on some junk that nobody wants. And uh, it's just it's disgraceful to me. I'm sorry. I think it's another example of, uh, the, you know, the one percent getting us all whipped up in a hysterical fervor, and uh, continuing this consumerist trend at Christmas time. But uh, workers at Walmart uh, are planning to go on strike on Friday, which is very exciting because normally when workers go on strike at Walmart, Walmart has in historically in the past shut the store, and of course, they can't do that if lots of people at lots of different Walmarts are going on strike all at the same time. So this is a very exciting development, and I'm really eager to see what happens. I'm scared that Walmart might say, you know, these people who went on strike, like, they're fired. Because, uh, you know, that's supposed to be illegal, but the question is, who's going to enforce that law? Because the National Labor Relations Board is supposed to do that and by enforcing the National Labor Relations Act, but... The NLRB has been historically and recently very unwilling to enforce the NLRA. So I'm not I'm not confident that Walmart would not have impunity to fire people who went on strike on Friday. So I'm going to be going out and showing my support for those striking workers at the Walmart mega store in Madison. And uh, I don't know, you can go out to your local Walmart on Friday and be like, yeah, I support you striking workers. Bring them a pizza or something. Uh, and finally, in the economics file this week, uh, there was an article in theatlanticcities.com, and the headline was, What happens, what really happens when a city makes its transit system free? And it was this article about um, this French city, and I can't remember which city it is, so let me pull out the article real quick, and I will tell you. Yes, the city is Chateaurie. And in 2001, uh, the transit system was in shambles, and uh, the uh, each of Chateaurie's 49,000 inhabitants took the bus on average 21 times per year, well below the 38 per annum average for small French cities. Uh, the mayor, Jean-François Mayet, uh, became, uh, went, got into office, and he made the bus system, the, the entire transit system, completely free. And here's what the article says. Overall, the project has been considered a success. In 2008, the conservative newspaper Le Figaro reported that Mayette was the most popular mayor in France among towns with between 30 and 50,000 inhabitants. He's still in the job, as well as being a regional representative to the French Senate. 
Later in the article, as it turns out, the change nearly paid for itself. 47% of busgoers were already riding for free, and tickets covered only 14% of the city's transit expenses. By slightly increasing the transit tax on big local businesses, while eliminating the cost of printing, ticket-punching technology, and the human infrastructure of ticket sales, the city turned a profit on the transit system in 03, 04, 05, and 07. Since 08, returns have not been as positive, though the report attributes that to a shift in control from the city to the region. So I just think, I mean, yeah, because when I think about like buses and stuff, like, first of all, a lot of people have vouchers already and it doesn't cost, you know, it, it, it does cost to ride the bus and certainly they're generating a lot of revenue, but, but there's also a lot of hassle and stupidity in terms of how you keep track of the collecting that money. And, and it should be something that's available to everybody and you shouldn't have to have a dollar or 50 cents or two dollars to ride the bus. It should just be something that's there for the people to use in the same way that libraries are there for people to use and schools are there for people to use. And I think that's what transit systems ought to be like. They ought to be totally free. So let's all get on that, please. Shall we make everything free? Speaking of free stuff... Uh, education is free in the United States, sort of. I had this big argument with one of my students on Friday. I was like, I don't remember what we were talking about, but he was like, there's no such thing as free! And he was talking about opportunity cost and, and you know, the original source of the stuff that, okay, fine. So I handed him a piece of paper. I'm like, here, this is yours. It's free. You can have it. And I mean, he was, in a technical sense, yes, he's right to pick apart the definition of what something means when we say free. But then, as I pointed out, you know what else that's true about? Every word in the English language. You could do that with any word. And it's a good thing to do. Socratic method, what is a pen? Okay, right. But when, when you know, his attitude, he's also the kid who said, um, I'd be in a cigarette commercial because cigarette commercials don't affect anybody. And so I was like, and then I remembered, wait a minute, you're in a marketing class. How, what, what are you wasting your time then by going into marketing? What are you talking about? Anyway, uh, in education news, uh, California strips 23 schools of ranking for cheating. This is from the Mercury News. Is that San Jose Mercury News? The same people that turn their backs on Gary Webb? It is the San Jose, no, Silicon Valley Mercury News. Never mind. I don't hate you, mercurynews.com. Anyway, um, the article says the California Department of Education has stripped 23 schools of a key state ranking due to cheating and other irregularities in administering standardized tests last spring. The Los Angeles Times reported Sunday that the violations ranged from failing to cover bulletin boards to helping students correct errors or coaching them with actual test questions. And this is something that a guy named Berliner, uh, I think his name was Alex Berliner, I don't remember his first name, but his, his name is Berliner, and he's a researcher in Arizona. And he said many years ago that we have a thing here that could be called the sociological Heisenberg principle, which is to say that the higher a test stakes are, the higher the stakes for a standardized test are, the less reliable the results of that test are going to be. And I believe with every fiber of my being that that is exactly what happens in every school, in every location on the planet. When we start making the stakes for these tests higher and higher, the results are less and less reliable. They tell us less and less about actual education. And we're starting to see that in Wisconsin because there's this new report card that's coming out now. And they're ranking every school according to certain criteria. And a lot of that criteria has to do with uh, the standardized test scores. 
and there's other things like a closing achievement gaps and attendance rates and graduation and all that. Uh, but but here's the thing. It's not just about, and if it were just about like, here's some information about this school, that would be one thing. But of course, it's, it never stops there. It's always attached to uh, how are we going to evaluate teachers and we're going to hold people accountable. And, and so the stakes get higher and higher and higher. And as a result, the information becomes less and less reliable because as we saw in the wire, Numbers get cooked. There's a hundred thousand ways for us to manipulate all sorts of data in order to make ourselves look good. And reputable in people with integrity, like Lieutenant Daniels in the Wire, uh, will swear, you know, insist the the stats will be clean. But they're going to be punished for it, and they may not get fired, but they will not get the promotions. They will not become majors. And that's not the kind of system I want to work in, where people are willing to. Uh, engage in sleight of hand, if not sometimes outright dishonesty, as we see in California, uh, in order to make their schools look good. I think schools ought to look the way they actually are. And if they're not good enough, we should make improvements, smaller class sizes, to make them better. So anyway, um, the, but but the, the, the stuff keeps piling on. I've started carrying this list with me that says, just one more thing, because it seems like every day now in our email or in our you know mailboxes, we're getting one more thing for us to keep track of. Some new acronym we're supposed to keep track of, some new you know process that we're supposed to remember about in order to help education. And, and you know, it's all piling on. And as Jamie Vollmer says, schools can't do it alone. And that's exactly what society keeps saying over and over again. Schools do this. Schools do that. Schools do this. Schools do that. And in one North Carolina teacher wrote a very interesting, eloquent letter about why she's quitting education. And Diane Ravitch put it up on her website, and I will read you an excerpt from her letter. And I should say right now off the bat, I'm relative, I know I'm very lucky because I have a really good administration at the high school where I teach and I got a lot of support from my district and I'm very happy about the way that they've been treating us in general. And, you know, I have some beefs about certain things here and there, but by and large, I know I'm very lucky and I wish to thank Lisa Hype and Dr. Culver and everybody who's, uh, you know, uh, looking out for me at the Sun Prairie School District and at Sun Prairie High School. However, this sort of thing is going on everywhere in the country right now and, you know, it creeps in certain places at different times. Uh, so anyway, this woman in North Carolina, very eloquent, she wrote this. I refuse to be led by a top-down hierarchy that is completely detached from the classrooms for which it is supposed to be responsible. I will not spend another day under the expectations that I prepare every student for the increasing numbers of meaningless tests. I refuse to be an unpaid administrator of field tests that take advantage of children for the sake of profit. I will not spend another day wishing I had some time to plan my fantastic lessons because administration comes up with new and inventive ways to steal that time under the guise of professional learning community meetings or whatever. I've seen successful PLC development. It doesn't look like this. So, yeah. That's what's going on in the world of education. robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we can have fun. Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead. Back to Democracy Now! Now! And uh, they had a segment. Uh, it was called Killer Robots. This was Tuesday, November 20th. Killer Robots! Human Rights Watch and Nobel Laureate Jody Williams urge ban on Modern Warfare's next frontier. And the segment is awesome. If you don't watch Democracy Now!, shame on you. You should totally check out democracynow.org. Five days a week, they do awesome reporting and lots of really good coverage and interviews with people and all sorts of stuff. Um, and this segment was great. I'm going to play you some clips. Here we go. Killer robots 
It sounds like science fiction, but a new report says fully autonomous weapons are possibly the next frontier of modern warfare. The report, released Monday by Human Rights Watch and Harvard Law School, is called Losing Humanity, the Case Against Killer Robots. According to the report, these weapons would undermine the safety of civilians in armed conflict, violate international humanitarian law, blur the lines of accountability for war crimes. Scholars such as Noel Sharkey, professor of artificial intelligence and robotics at the University of Sheffield in England, also notes that robots cannot distinguish between civilians from combatants. In artificial intelligence or robotics that could discriminate between a combatant and a civilian. It would be impossible to tell the difference between a little girl pointing an ice cream at a robot or someone pointing a rifle at it. Yeah, so I mean, it's a great piece. You should totally listen to the whole thing. Um, there, there's in this the woman Jody Williams is so awesome because she won the Nobel Peace Prize a few years ago. I remember I was working at a bookstore in Sarasota, Florida, and uh, I, they I had heard about her interaction, you know, her campaign to get rid of landmines uh, several years before. And so when she won the Nobel Peace Prize, I was really excited. I was like, yes, it was awesome. And there was this great picture in the newspaper of her in her like Vermont shack. And she had, like, no shoes on. And it was such a cute picture because she was just like, hello, everybody, ban landmines. And uh, so so awesome and unpretentious and great. And she's a really cool lady. And she's been campaigning for human rights and stuff. And now she's really taken on this um, killer robots thing. So let me play a clip of her talking about the killer robots. Killer robots are, um, when I first say that to people, they automatically think drones. And killer robots are quite different in that there is no man in the loop. As we know, with drones, a human being has to fire on the target. A drone is actually a precursor to killer robots, which are weapon—will be weapon systems that can kill on their own, with no human in the loop. It's really terrifying to contemplate. Steve Goose, um, lay them out for us, and who is developing them? Uh, so this is a guy from Human Rights Watch, and I'm actually going to cut him off because he's an interesting guy, and you should watch the whole segment. But there's another part later in the interview uh, with Jody Williams that uh, I think uh, really bears playing on this show as well. I don't see any choice but to recommend to the review board that you stay here for another six months. Actually, that was a, I think that was a clip from Terminator 2. I may have gotten my sound clips mixed up. But anyway, in the missile. Oh, yeah, it's thanks to the Duchess because she alerted me to the killer robots thing on Democracy Now! So, yay, Duchess, love you, babe. Um, <laughs> that one night. Uh, so, anyway, the uh, anti computer virus pioneer John McAfee. Wanted for murder. What the hell? This is one of the weirdest stories ever. USA Today reported on this. John McAfee, the eccentric 67-year-old founder of the antivirus software company McAfee Incorporated, is wanted for murder in Belize, Gizmodo reported Monday, citing Belize officials. McAfee is the prime suspect in the murder of an American expatriate, Gregory Fole or Foley, Foley, whatever, uh, who was shot and killed. So I shouldn't say whatever. That sounds really glib. Eh, whoever this guy is that got killed. Uh, shot and killed Saturday night at his home on the island of Ambergris K. That's the real place, Ambergris K. I can't believe I didn't notice that the first time. That's almost as good as Aslag Grinstead. Uh, an official police statement issued Monday said that the body of the well-liked 52-year-old builder from California was found in a pool of blood from an apparent gunshot wound to the head. Quote, last Wednesday, Fall filed a formal complaint against McAfee with the mayor's office, asserting that McAfee had fired off guns and exhibited, quote, roguish behavior, Gizmodo reported. Their final disagreement apparently involved dogs. 
So that's crazy. This John McAfee dude now is wanted for murder. What the hell? And uh, there's a really funny thing on Reddit. Uh, somebody posted a little meme that said, McAfee wanted for murder. Uh, the trial will last 30 days. That's <laughs> funny. Murder is funny. No, it's not. But uh, that joke was funny about it. Too soon. Uh, Robin Tate sent me something about artificial muscles created from carbon yarn. This is an interesting article, and this comes to us from Sky News. And the article says, artificial muscles that can lift loads 200 times heavier than a human muscle could power the limbs of super strong robots in the future, scientists say. Uh, In tests, the muscles made from twisted strands of carbon yarn were able to pull more than 100,000 times their own weight. Damn. It doesn't say damn in the article. That's my commentary there. Uh, Professor Ray Baumann from the University of Texas at Dallas said, quote, the artificial muscles that we've developed can provide large, ultra-fast contractions to lift weights that are 200 times heavier than possible for a natural muscle of the same size. So there you go. If the, uh, if the robots don't kill us all, like Sarah Connor warns about, uh, then they'll be lifting things, which I, I, that's all right. I don't mind that. The problem, of course, will be when they're like used for as riot police and they'll just lift people up and carry them out or whatever, uh, and they'll be able to do it. Three protesters at a time, <laughs> come with us. Uh, you have 15 seconds to comply, like the Ed 209. Remember that? That was pretty cool. All right, moving on. Let's talk about hip hop. Uh, one, two, one, two. Uh, 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 I'd like to say a special thanks to Turtle502 at the start of this segment because he said uh, on Twitter, I'd never considered hip-hop interesting until I started listening to Duke Scath's regular perspective spotlight on it in the didactic syncast. So thank you, Turtle. I appreciate that. Uh, Yeah, I think hip-hop gets a bad rap in the press and a lot of, you know, people who listen to hip-hop, unfortunately, are not the best ambassadors for what hip-hop could be. And so whatever, uh, I, I think there's a, there's a lot to hip hop in the same way that Scott McCloud showed in understanding comics that, you know, comics can be a huge expansive universe. And unfortunately we too often think of them as being this one tiny little thing. And, but you know, in the same way, hip hop, there's a lot to it. There's a lot of different dimensions to what hip hop can be and is in the, in the areas that don't get on the TV and the radio very often. So, Hey, that's what I'm here for. X-Clan! I was never into X-Clan back in the day. Garrett was into X-Clan way before I was. And so I'm a latecomer to the game, but I'm a huge fan of X-Clan these days. And they're very much into this whole sort of uh, Marcus Garvey, Afrocentric perspective. A lot of sort of uh, red, black, and green imagery in their uh, videos and in their album covers. They have a lot of Egyptian iconography and, you know, wearing of onks and all that stuff. And in 2006, they put out a great album called Return from Mecca. And it was special because the dude who had been the pioneer uh, of X-Clan back in the day was Dr. X, and he died. And so Brother J, who had been a member of X-Clan back in the day, uh, people thought that, you know, once Professor X died, uh, Professor X, Dr. X, Uh, anyway, once he died, a lot of people assumed that X-Clan was done. But Brother J came back in 2006 with a great album called Return from Mecca. I really love it. And so this track is called Weapon X, and I really like it, and the video's good, so let me just shut up and play it here. Yeah, yeah, ultra banger, silly with it, weapon X, yo. I'm not known for the singing of the common man's grammar. Jay from the clan, but I'm not a Wu-Tanger. Concrete gorilla, still spitting bananas. We set the foundation. 
become secondary to my timeless jewels and street knowledge degrees. Come on. Weapon X haters down on your knees. Throw your rhymes in the flames and repent to the east. One, two, three, and a three, two, one. Exodus, hip hop redemption. Resurrection, tell folks I'm on one. Like my boy and I'm a star. Me, want free, dumb. Round the mountain I come. Hannibal's descendant won't stand for minimum. Dummy those gunners, I bring the hella heat. My underground scroll spellbound in the streets. Weapon X. So, you know, in the video, people are, like, reading books and stuff, and it's so awesome because it stresses this, you know, knowledge of self and knowledge of history stuff, and there's a part in the song where they go, wait, I'm just going to play it because it's too awesome for me to try to mess up and fumble around and screw up for you. Let me just play the awesome part of the middle of the song. Weapon X, modern day for the jihad, the cypher. Frederick Douglass, Wheatley, Carver, Clayton Jr., David Walker, Sonny Carson, to Ace Rap Brown, Ancestry that walked the black crowd. Think. As if you were born in the stars, enrolled in the army of Abdul Jabbar's. And so, you know, I mean, dude, referencing people like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, how awesome is that? For those who don't know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is not just an awesome basketball player or the hilarious actor in the movie Airplane. He also wrote a lot of books. He wrote one called Black Profiles and Courage, and he wrote one about black inventors, and he wrote one about people in his neighborhood in Brooklyn who went off to fight in um, World War II, and he's an awesome example of a scholar-athlete. So they're referencing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and mentioning David Walker and uh, Frederick Douglass and lots of awesome people, and just that emphasis on learning history and reading books it's so exciting because so much of you know chuck d had a thing about people who are on mtv cribs and all these rap stars making millions and millions of dollars there's never any books in their houses and that's a sad commentary on you know the state of popular hip-hop so whatever um yeah all right we're running up on an hour so let me get to the friends romans countrymen let me your ears stop repenting because the end is near but don't panic you can't function if you live in a fear pay attention you gotta listen to hear Neil S. sent me a very nice email, and he was thanking me for the podcast, and he says it's been helpful to him. Uh, I'm very grateful for this feedback. Thank you so much, Neil. Uh, I often feel like I'm sometimes just babbling about, can eat more. So it's really heartwarming to get email like that. And as I've said before elsewhere and probably on here, you know, this is the whole reason I became a teacher because I, I, I feel like there's certain things I can explain and there's certain things that I, I like to keep track of that I think are important for people to know about. And when it comes to things like literature, you know, reaching out to students at school, I really love doing that and talking about, you know, why it's important to read Huckleberry Finn and, and, uh, and why, you know, why it's important to make up stories and have fun writing and reading books and stuff. And uh, so it's just really, I don't know, I think it's really awesome to hear from people. Anyway, I say all of that as a way to set up the quote of the week because Neil S. sent me a great speech that I've heard before, but it's really good to be reminded of this stuff. Charlie Chaplin in his movie, um, The Great Dictator, uh, the, he did a... Um, he did a speech at the end, and it's a really great speech. It's very, it's timeless, and it's awesome. So I'm going to go ahead and play that speech because it's worth listening to every time. I'm sorry. But I don't want to be a, an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful. But we have lost the way. 
Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men, with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines, you are not cattle, you are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate, only the unloved hate, the unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world, that will give men a chance to work that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power. But they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite! Yeah, uh, what more can I say, top villain? Um, yeah, that's it, people. Thank you very much for listening. Show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, which is at fbesp.org slash synapse. My website is the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music I've made and fiction I've written and multimedia I've made and lots of other stuff. Uh, Shout-outs this week to Nick S. and everyone else who sends me email and tweets and stuff. Uh, Turtle502 and The Duchess and Stu and Jason R. and Robin Tate and everybody else. Um, thank you so much for all your feedback, people. Uh, I really appreciate hearing from people. Uh, I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there's things I forgot to cut out. I don't know what to tell you. I'm a very busy Listen, man. I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. And Shinny knows where that comes from now, so you're welcome. Uh, anyway, deal with it.
Thank you for listening. Please get in touch with feedback or questions or things you have, you know, interest in or news articles you find or whatever. I can be reached at esp at fbesp.org. Uh, yeah, I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. Sorry for such a long delay. I, you know, it's school, people. I get so crazy overwhelmed with school that I, I just, you know, Sundays or Saturdays, days off, I... I feel like this kind of can become a chore, so I'm trying to do it as often as I can, but I can't make any promises about when the next one will be, uh, almost certainly over winter break, if nothing else, so around Christmas time or the new year, uh, I will definitely be doing another show then, but and hopefully another one between now and then, but I can't make any promises. I'm a busy guy. Deal with it. I'll play this again. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get yes. done.